welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. I am delighted to welcome Mike Gray to this week's episode of the Intuitive Insights podcast. Mike Gray is a railway industry consultant specialising in IT and mobile communications. It's fair to say that Mike's brain works very differently to mine, and I'm delighted to say that I understood it all. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I hope you learn as much as I did and that you enjoy it too. Thanks for joining us. Mike Gray, a very, very warm welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast. I am delighted that you've been able to join me. Um, I've been looking forward to this for ages. It feels like so much, so long since we booked it in and now we're finally here. Um, for those of you who don't, uh, for those people who don't know who you are and what you do, then we're going to find out much more about that. But I'll introduce you as a rail industry consultant who specialises in technology, innovation and mobile communications, which we might get a little bit provocative about later on in the conversation. Um, in time-honoured fashion, I'm going to hand over to you and really love to hear your career story. What brought you into this industry? Where did you start and where are you today? What are you up to? Wow. Okay. Where do we begin? Um, I, I think my story begins on a platform in the northeast of England at the age of about three or four years old, watching a, an old BR Class 100 um, DMU roll into our single platform right. re regional station. Um with my dad waiting for my mum who was working at the time to come out of work and I think the very first time I saw that train that was it for me and really? from that point onwards I've loved the real industry and, and always wanted to be part of it um my father on the other hand wasn't a fan of the rail industry at the time this is back in this is, this is going back quite a lot of years now <laughs> uh uh, I'm nearly 50 now so uh, yeah this is this is proper blue blue, blue and gray BR uh he didn't think that was the right place for me to be as I grew up and he pushed me very hard into the world of computers um from a very very young age and uh, about the age six I was starting to program computers uh my dad actually bought me a computer a little um, Sinclair Spectrum thing and at that time you could buy a magazine and then you had to literally spend hours and hours inputting the code letter by letter yeah. to play a game so if you wanted to do anything fun you had to learn how to code so we spent most of my very young years actually doing that um which is relatively unusual i'm told uh for people that young to be doing it but that's how mm -hmm. i grew up I I, yeah very heavily driven by my father who was um he was who actually worked for gec he's one of the right. directors of one of the gec companies so he, he was very into the where technology technology was going kind of right um, thing uh, his, his job was very technological you could see the trend you could see computers going to be huge so it's very much mike you've got to be in computers okay i wasn't that bothered about computers but i was actually quite good at them right. so i you know I, it wasn't my interest i still love trains so i still spent most of my my time trying to, to show my dad that i could work in, in the railway world uh, i was constantly being pushed away from it so eventually i went to university and I didn't go to university to do a computing degree, much to my dad's disappointment. I went to university to do a business degree because my reasoning was I could do the computer bit. The bit that I couldn't do was the business bit. Yeah. I didn't understand how business worked. So I went and did a university to go on business. Um, the aim at that time was actually to start my own company. I wanted to go off and build my own business in the technology sector. 
that didn't happen. I got recruited by um, a company which eventually became Hewlett Packard, but it was Digital Equipment Corp. Um, when I got recruited, then it became Compact Computer, then it became HP. Uh, I got recruited by them, and they got me basically in in the world of very large industrial IT and, and technology, and building the computers that drove you know nuclear power stations and you know, very large pieces of infrastructure. So I, I spent quite a good chunk of my career, um, nearly fifteen years in total, in that sector, doing that kind of work. So managing. Um, strategically planning big big technology transformation projects for you know uh, for big companies and I, I got to work with some incredible people got to go some unbelievable places um I remember looking after jaguar land rover and ford and going around all the big manufacturing plants and to be able to go into those environments is is just an incredible place to see how things are made and put together and how things work um but i still hankered after rail so I, I, I created this situation in my career where I started to look after more and more of the train companies. And I guess this is where privatization and the franchise will help me because privatization created an opportunity for me to start talking to the railway operating businesses uh, and uh, network rail as it became. So that allowed me to start moving my career towards the transport and particularly the rail sector by in my current career specializing in that area and it got to a point where i was really getting quite bored of being in a big corporate company and i was hankering after running my own business again and uh working for one of my um sort of clients as it were at the time which on the rail operating businesses they had an opportunity in their franchise bidding team so i basically quit my, my <laughs> corporate career and decided to go and be a freelance contractor in, in rail franchise bidding um which was quite a what, number of years ago now um and i to be honest best decision i ever made yeah. it, it it has been the most fun uh part of my career uh, working in the rail industry from that perspective and i think a lot of people think they can't work in rail because they're not engineers or they don't drive a train and or they're not selling tickets. Um, yeah. So they think, well, I can't do that job. Um, actually, well, I'm actually, I do none of those things. I'm, I'm an IT guy. I'm a technologist. I'm a strategist and I work in innovation. Uh, I work on long-term, very large scale, long-term projects. And uh, I don't drive a train. It's not I quite like to, but I don't. Um, so there's lots of career opportunity and there's lots of ways to get into rail. I, I got into rail through the route of rail franchise bidding, which maybe we'll see come back again at some point in the future. But there are lots of ways to work for railways that don't actually involve the more general kind of um, uh, job role routes that you you normally associate with the industry yeah. and allow you to to be the, um, the the person who is who is looking at it from a very different perspective, not the day to day operations, but where do we take the railways in the future and, and be part of that that future vision uh, it's, it's where I spend most of my time. Um, I mean, that that as a career, potted career history basically took me through many, many franchise bids, uh, yeah. most of the franchise in the UK and actually abroad. So I, I've been to Sweden and the Netherlands and to Israel doing um, uh, what, what's com termed competitive benchmarking of those railways for their technology. Uh, so I've in all three of those countries, I've worked with the, the local um, national operators on the technology um, strategy, where they're headed with it and 
benchmarked it against the UK real industry and give them some feedback on what they should or should be doing versus our industry, which we still hold up as leaders mm. in railways in the world. So that, that was a very entertaining exercise. And I, I do every now and again get to talk to my French colleagues, my German colleagues and my American colleagues in, in the railway technology world because we're all trying to run railways. Yes. Railway technology is relatively globally common. So spend a lot of time looking outwards from the UK into the into the wider world to see how other countries are running their railways and what technology they're using and how it's being done, which is a great insight to bring back to to our world and go, we're pretty good actually. Um, we're actually doing pretty well. We're still out there right at the front when it comes to technology and, and railway operations. And we've got a lot to teach the rest of the world actually still. Yeah. Um, um, so yes, yeah, so that, that where, where did I get to in my career? So now these days I'm mostly working on um, mobile comms projects, yeah. uh, which is Wi-Fi on trains, <laughs> very topical. Uh, and how do we get Wi-Fi on trains to work? And yeah. uh, I guess that's that's probably the next best place to go with this. because it, It's very topical in, in the news right now because yes. uh, the government, in their infinite wisdom, have decided that we should probably reevaluate why we're we putting Wi-Fi on trains. Mm. And I'm going to be quite controversial, so I actually agree with them. Um, yeah, you are being government. controversial there, definitely. That's good. Yeah, That's good. Yeah. <laughs> before the government made the announcement, I was already writing a paper that said probably shouldn't be offering Wi-Fi in every train. Okay. I know this isn't politically what you want to hear, but this is kind of where we are. But, but yeah, um, and I'm really interested to know the what the, your thought process there because there there was definitely myself included a real knee jerk reaction to this announcement that oh the government are taking Wi-Fi off the trains because that feels like from coming from my background which was all around customer experience yeah should we not be looking for ways to make it better rather than taking something away so I'm really looking forward to hearing your rationale on this. Right. So I, I look, I, I've spent most of my career advocating Wi-Fi on trains, most of my career, way before um, uh, it was mandated in 2018 that every train had to have it. Uh, I was saying we need to make this a better um, product. Um, I was in the customer experience team in the franchise bidding world. And, and the whole team was completely universally agreed. Need better Wi-Fi, better Wi-Fi in stations, better Wi-Fi on trains, better customer experience. That's what all the survey said as well. Lots of feedback from government and from the public um, themselves and, and the, the regional stakeholders. That's what we need, better Wi-Fi. When you actually unpick it and you look at the studies that are being done now, particularly after COVID, Wi-Fi is really important, but it's important in a, in a very narrow context. And we keep having to remind ourselves of this, right? So you and I are using Wi-Fi now to do this call. We're both in nice, comfortable, warm environments. We sat down. We're using our laptop probably, and you know we've, we've got facilities around as we feel safe. So you can sit down. You can do some really productive tasks in that kind of set of circumstances. And in the railway, those occur in waiting rooms, you know, uh, on station retail and, and cafe bars. They they occur in in nice, comfortable coaches where you've got some space. You've got a seat. You've got a table. You know, doing a reasonably long journey, you're not on there for five minutes. So if you think about the need state when we go to Wi-Fi, it's all those things. It, and if we're not in that need state, and let's go to, to the other end of the spectrum, let's talk about maybe the tube or the Elizabeth line or a very short, you know, you get on, you're on there for five minutes, you get off again. Mm. You're not getting your laptop out. You're not doing Zoom calls. You're not trying to do some Excel spreadsheets. I mean, it, it's, it's an entirely different 
need states. You're on there to move from A to B. But what you might do is get your mobile phone out and look at Instagram or look at your email or do something which is very mobile centric. Yeah. In which case, Wi-Fi isn't really that useful because you spend a lot of time trying to log on to it. Um, and it, it, it it's still a bit fiddly in terms of the user experience, despite how all our efforts to make it easier. So you typically want 4G or 5G to do those kind of things. And Transport for London, good for them, have actually decided to pull Wi-Fi out of their stations. The, the Wi-Fi in the stations is being turned off. If you travel on the tube now, and by the end of this year, you'll have 4G and 5G in all the tunnels and all the stations, right. which is what you need for a journey on the underground. That's exactly yeah. what the passenger and the consumer want. So we need to look at Wi-Fi and where we're spending the money as an industry and what need state does it serve? Well, so there's a very strong business case for Wi-Fi on LNER or GWR's long distance services or Avanti's long distance services. That, that, that's where you need Wi-Fi. Those are the long journeys. We're nice in comfortable environments, got a seat most of the time. That's where you need Wi-Fi. What you probably don't need Wi-Fi for is the much shorter journeys, even out in the regions in Wales or in Scotland, where you're only on the train for a relatively short period of time. Mm -hmm. And you might not really have the right environment in order to sit down and, and be comfortable to use a laptop. Those environments, you're much better off trying to solve the mobile phone signal. We've got to remember that Wi-Fi is driven by the mobile phone signal. So the yeah. way we get Wi-Fi on the trains is through the mobile signal. Mm -hmm. So if there's no mobile signal, the Wi-Fi on the train doesn't work. And I, I regularly hear, why don't we use um, Starlink or why don't we use satellite communications instead of mobile signal? And, and in a very narrow set of circumstances, that kind of stuff will probably work. Um, it would work in the, the much more regional, rural environments that we have, you know, bits of Wales, bits of Scotland, you know, bits of England where the little 1-5X units are running around with a handful of people on if you want to provide Wi-Fi to those guys, then Starlink might be the answer. Mm. Um, but it, it's certainly not going to be the answer for much longer, higher load, loaded trains, um, mm. trains doing much longer journeys, people where you're wanting to do Netflix or wanting to do um, more heavy, data-heavy kind of activity. So we have to solve those problems differently. Mm. Uh, in fact, a research study I did just over a year ago now said that a high-speed train in the UK would, would probably need over a gigabit of data between it and the, and the shore to cover all the passengers want um, yeah. for, a, for a reasonably loaded train. And that will get bigger and bigger and bigger as time moves forwards. Um, and by the mid sort of 2030s, um, 2040s timeframe, that'll be five gigabits per second of data that will need to move from the train to the outside world to keep people happy in terms yeah. of the things they want to do, which is quite a lot. Mm. Um, it's way beyond our current set of technologies. So we, as an industry, have got this, this problem that's coming down the track, if you like, of yes. we could fix Wi-Fi, but firstly, the public aren't, aren't universally wanting that. Most of them are actually wanting mobile phone signal. Yeah. Our Wi-Fi is driven by mobile phone signal mainly, and where we actually need Wi-Fi is on the long-distance trains. So we're wasting our time delivering all the rest of them. Like, got some stats that actually show that so my my position back in this paper before the government made the announcement was very much we're spending a lot of money making people pretty unhappy delivering or well, promising wi-fi which we then don't deliver on these trains yeah. so we should probably stop doing that because that's not good customer experience 
Now, if we're going to say we're going to do something, we, we do it. So if we, you know, we're offering a service, we should deliver on that service or we should stop spending money on it. And my view was that we should stop spending money on Wi-Fi everywhere and actually focus the spend on Wi-Fi in the places it was very, very useful to us and made a difference to those mm -hmm. passengers. And they valued it, which was the long distance trains. And the only genuine way of answering the problem, and again, worked on this for nearly a decade, uh, you, you have to build infrastructure on the railways. And this is, I guess, where more, one of my big wishes, so my, my first big wish is that yeah. GBR, when it comes into existence, as soon as possible, please, yeah. um, can we scope out and build a railway-focused mobile phone infrastructure for the mainline network? Yeah. And I've said this a, a number of times to people in the industry. We've got FRMCS coming down the, the track, mm -hmm. so the replacement to GSMR, because uh, GSMR's life is up around 2035, which I know is a long way off, but it's in the railway terms. You can start thinking about it. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So with GSMR coming to an end, and uh, over in Europe, they're starting to deploy FRMCS, or so what we'll do next year. Um, we should start thinking about, well, if we're going to have to spend all this money replacing GSMR, which is a 2G mobile phone system, mm. and FRMCS is based on 4G and 5G technology, and let's just say that figure's about £3 billion pounds, that's a replace all of it in the UK. Well, if I want to spend £3 billion, pounds, I'd quite like to get a bit more return on my investment. So if I'm going to do that, why don't I build a public mobile phone system for the railway that yeah. is also capable of delivering the frmcs signal mm. now there's there's a business case in that yeah um, there's a commercial wrap in terms that you construct that says rather than the uk government spending three billion on it we could actually give it to a third party to deliver as a service delivering both frmcs and mobile coverage yeah. to get lots more return on our investments and if we're to believe um pdfh which is the passion demand forecasting handbook which tells all, all the railway what they can charge for their fares based on what they offer as a service um, if we believe that then there's value in delivering wi-fi and there's value in delivering mobile phone signal which you can reflect in your fares and if you take that logical train of thought through my wish would be well all that money that we can generate by doing a better job of mobile phone signal and wi-fi mm. can be reflected in better fares revenue well that should be invested back into infrastructure which is long-term infrastructure, it's 10, 15, 20-year investment, there's a good business case for us to take that approach, which would then fundamentally solve the, the public want for mobile phone signal mm. and the railway's need for operational telecoms. The railway needs um, radio connectivity trained ashore as well. So that, that would be one of my big wishes, is yeah. that an organisation like GBR could take that and grasp that particularly large and difficult commercial um, project and go, we as an entity are big enough now and have a national scale focus and can see the big strategic plan to start making those investments. Yeah. And, and if I'm being honest, the place you start with this is the West Coast main line, mm. because at some point HS2 arrives. And it, it's, I'm fairly sure it's public domain knowledge that HS2 will build a dedicated mobile phone network inside the new sections. There's right. lots of tunnels and cuttings. It needs to build its own dedicated mobile phone system so on hs2 we'll have this beautiful really consistent mobile phone signal all the way from london to to birmingham but as soon as it hits the old network the classic network it'll drop off cliff right. back to 
at best endeavors. So you, you probably want to start focusing our investment on this new this new infrastructure on the West Coast mainline so that those services have consistency. Plus West Coast mainline north is also coming around for some major refurbishment work around signaling and telecom. So again, logical that you you move yeah. that to a to this yeah. new base of technology. And you 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 know go help Dave Horn's organization out and LNER and Mark's, you know, GWR operation by 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 building out on those networks too, which would give those those businesses um, much better customer experience. But to do that, I think we probably need to stop spending it in the other areas, which might be politically difficult because those regions won't want you to stop spending on Wi-Fi. But if the Wi-Fi doesn't work, yeah. is that is that not a legitimate position to take? Absolutely. I, I think that I completely agree with um, the comment that you've made in terms of we, if we're promising something, but we're not delivering it, then then just stop promising it. Because I know I, I use the West Coast regularly to go from Preston down to Houston. And um, I would prefer not to use the Wi-Fi because I get so frustrated that it just keeps dropping out and you have to then dial back in. And it's kind of, you know, it, it just it drives me crackers. So I just prefer not to do it. Um, what I'm also hearing you say here, which makes so much sense, is for the railway to think outside of itself in terms of that business case. So instead of just thinking about the track and the train and the passengers that we carry on our services what can we do in collaboration with other industries with other bodies which can help the the, the passengers but not necessarily just when they're on the train so how do we do that how do we kind of collaborate with others and look at the bigger picture and that whole railway as a system where it's the whole thing, looking at it, as you've just explained it so beautifully to someone who hasn't got a, an IT brain at all, it just feels like, well, why are we not doing that then? Because it just feels like common sense. It feels like complete common sense. I can't explain to you why. That's a bit more politically loaded. But it, it, <laughs> we, we, everything, in, investment requires an understanding of who's going to pay for it and who benefits from it. And, yeah. and this is, again, we're back to GBR, big fan of GBR. I think it's the right right move broadly for the uk industry we need someone to take ownership of it that owns the track and the train because yeah. that, that's where we get into this difficult conversation about who pays and who benefits mm. um because effectively network rail would have to build the project because it's so you know that the infrastructure is effectively on the railway it's on the railway line of route yeah but the benefits with the railway operator so the fare box benefits so how do you charge or create a commercial model that works? Well, you, you could uplift your track access charges, but that that's not not really the, probably the way to go with it. Whereas if you've got GBR looking at it in an entirety, you can take a different view of the, the commercial proposition and, and construct a model that says we will make this investment because we all, we as GBR see the return for it, and we can do it in the context of the strategic plan and where train service will run, where we expect passenger numbers to grow, et cetera, et cetera. So GBR makes sense and act as a body to own this as a, as a project. Yeah, I think that's been our problem, actually, as an industry for the last 20 odd years. You need a body that can take on a project like that, which who isn't the operator of the track, who isn't the operator of the train necessarily, but is able to look at the two things in context. Yeah, yeah. and it, we need that. We do need that as, a, as an industry to, to, there's quite a number of projects that fit into that awkward 
yes who pays for this who benefits for it kind of yeah. debate yeah yeah um a great first wish actually and really different so you know there are understandably there are some common themes when i'm having these conversations that people are kind of wanting to focus on and and what you've explained to us there is something that's um that's quite different and i've really enjoyed hearing that one you've got two left you've got two wishes still to take um what would you what would you like to wish for well, I suppose my second wish has got to be, and again, controversial for you. I quite like franchising. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> um, I, I, I worked in. I've worked in the teams, so I um, I saw the good that the teams are trying to do, and I, I saw the positives that, that the, the process created. It, it did get broken. I'm not going to. I'm going to agree with the decision to stop it and, and move away from it was the right one. Mm. But franchising delivered a lot of good things. And a lot of those things took a while to, to filter through. We are now starting to see quite a lot of very positive things um, from the franchising process coming through. Yes, it had its problems. That's not, let's not ignore that fact. It yeah. had its problems. But the, the thought process of sitting down, looking at the genuine needs of the passengers in, that, in an area, mm-hmm. defining um, what the real requirements were of that local group, talking to the stakeholders, the really detailed engagement, and, and the replanning of that service very much around those people and what they wanted. And then delivering that as a product which was packaged and branded so people knew what they were buying. Actually, all those things aren't bad things. I mean, mm. the, um, Mersey Rail, as an example, incredible operation, nice branding, really focused on its regional stakeholders. A real example of a really well-run um, operation. It's a franchise. It is working. It, it, it was a well-designed franchise. It's a it's a very effective um, franchise model, and uh, Transport for London. They've obviously got a franchise model with Arriva um, over Overground. Again, intensely successful model. Yeah. So if, if we we can actually point to franchises that work, um, I I do think I I actually think we've got three railways in the UK. Right. Bear with me. Yeah. There's three distinct railways at least. Um, Let's start with freight. So na- national network delivering freight is, is in itself really a system of, of its own, own creation. It's, it's a commercial system. It's very competitive. It's working really well. And I feel for the freight operators because what they really should be able to do is go, I need to go from A to B. Give me a route. Yeah. You know, we, we almost need to get to a world where any freight operator can pretty much dial in and go, is there, is there a route free? And just be able to get routes between A and B to serve their customers like the, the national freight warriors do with the road network. Mm. It should be that easy for them. But, and that, and that's, I know it's, it's easy to say, it's incredibly hard to do. The route clearances and the, you know, the, the driver route knowledge is difficult to crack, but there, there are, there's a vision there. Right. And I think as a country for net zero, we need to be pushing freight on the rail much, much mm. harder than we are, which does mean, you know, well, we'll come on to my third wish that's related to this uh, in a minute, but freight is a railway of itself. Um, then you've got the the regions, so the, the passenger operations that serve the economies, that take people to work, that take kids to school, that take people on their, their, their evenings out and or their day trips. Those networks are largely public, public good and they serve GDP growth. They probably won't make you any money, you might even lose money, but you do them because the infrastructure and our society needs them. Yeah. And you'd run those in a very distinct, distinct way. 
Um, and then the final railway we have, which I'm quite passionate about these days, is the long distance world, which is um, which should be competitive. If I mean, we've got some our East Coast Main Line. What's happening with Lumo and great, you know, Grand Central trains, etc. There's, there's, there's obviously a benefit to competition, which is taking market share from the airlines. Mm. And finally, we're actually seeing it come together on that that route to say we're actually hurting the, the airlines now. We're taking away market share from them. We're not doing that because we're terrible. We're doing that because we've got a much better product. And that's that's the where we we need to be looking at how do i get the long distance operations to have some genuine competition because yeah. it's good for passenger it's it's good for us as an economy and actually those guys make money yeah it, it, it's a it's a railway that's supports itself. Yeah. yeah i think the open access um i literally the, over the last if even i'll just think about the last month the industry meetings that i've been in um, kind of general discussions from, you know, kind of 15 people around the table with with Hugh Merriman that I was privileged to go and tell him to take part in this in the, the Walmart transport lunch to then being part of the National Rail Award judging committee. And over and over again, people are noticing what's what's different on the East Coast. And it's really, really fascinating for me, having been in the industry just over 10 years to not hearing about open access at all. And then literally in the last year, probably, the momentum starting to build to the point now where literally, I don't know, I would say the majority of conversations that I'm privy to are mentioning open access. It's really interesting, that competition space. Um, gosh, yeah, lots, so much opportunity there. Um, and, and like you say around, I mean, obviously you mentioned net zero in connection with, um, with the freight piece. But in, in that whole kind of modal shift piece, yeah, so taking people off the airlines, but then also becoming more attractive to people leaving the car at home, come and get on the train and do it that way. So it's it's so important that we get better at this, isn't it? Um, gosh, yeah, so much to talk about there. Um, third wish. What would oh, right. be your last one? Uh, electrification. Yeah. Um I'm I'm quite big on uh, decarbonisation and, and the environment. And I, to be honest, this summer, particularly what's happening with sea temperatures, should terrify you. Um, yeah, we need to be doing something now about that uh, electrification and the, the work done uh, on the decarbonisation strategy and the electrification strategy already completely points the way to what we need to be doing. It is it's quite frustrating actually to to realise that we're just not getting on with it. it it's pretty clear what we need to do um so i i i'm almost begging for them to relook at that you you need you need to move very quickly on electrification now and we, we could have 90 90 plus percent of freight being moved under the wires just for a few relatively modest projects mm. we just cracked on with them i mean i'm struggling with it we, we've got all the reports yeah. we've seen we know what we have to do yeah you need to do it now. You, know, you need to start committing then, it. Mike? Where do you think the blocker is? Yeah, I, I'm struggling with it because I'm, I'm. I don't know why we wouldn't want to do it. It makes. I'm um, as, as someone who does strategy and looks at business cases all the time. Don't that, that perplexes me entirely. It's a, it's a, it's a no brainer. In it, my head, I'm it, sure. it, everyone, I think the industry is in total agreement that this is the way that we should be going. 
but for for some reason it doesn't we don't seem to and is it so is it funding are we coming back to this the the same issue in terms of yeah we can't afford to do that or it's not it maybe it's just not a priority then I don't know I don't know the answer to that one and we're we're definitely not going to get to the bottom of it in this conversation but I'm fascinated because everybody thinks it's the right idea everybody I speak to says it's the right thing to do but it doesn't seem to be happening um I'm going to to bring us on to our, our kind of um, third and final part of our podcast conversation. Before I do that, you you took you took me through your career story, and I loved listening to that. I'm always fascinated when somebody says to me, you know, stood on a platform, age three or four years old, saw a train, and and kind of I know these were not your words, but my words, fell in love with the railway. Mark Hotwood said exactly the same to me when he came on the podcast. It was kind of at that age, it was kind of knowing that I want to be involved in this. Um, But as you've said, you were, you know, influenced by your dad's aspirations for your career. Um, Was he happy with the route that you took? Was he pleased in terms of of kind of um, ticking that? technology box because you've absolutely done that but you've clearly combined it with the passion that you had for the railway yeah I think he is it, yeah. it's um I, th- I think he's surprised actually and that he's surprised that I can do this job in the railways and yes. that's probably one of the biggest things that, yeah. that I'd, I'd like yeah I'd, I mean it, the intellectual challenge of this job is incredible yeah you can't get it anywhere else and I've worked in lots of different other areas mm-hmm. the railways give you really uh, in terms of intelligence kind of puzzle to solve that they throw you the best problems yeah it, it's the most fun environment to try and operate in because they they're fun problems to try and solve that they're, they're, they're complicated they're difficult um but the rewards are high and, and you can see the results of your work really quickly you can get on a train and go see yeah, um you know so he, I'd, I'd highly recommend it as an industry to work in and yeah. I think hopefully my dad sees I'm far happier doing this than I was doing some of the other stuff I used to do. Yeah. Um, along my my hopefully stay in this industry and try and work within it because I do love it. You've clearly um, got a passion for it. I think so. The the third and final part of the conversation is where I ask you what inspires you. Uh, and this might be so because what I don't want to do is miss the opportunity to talk to you about the Brio project that you're doing. This might be this. It might be one and the same answer. I don't know. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. But tell me, I'd like to know where you get your inspiration from. I'd also really like to know about the Brio project that you've done. Right. Uh, where do I get my inspiration? Well, these days, my little boy gives my inspiration. He's just about to turn six. So I, to be honest, he, he's, um, he gives me a lot of inspiration. and He drives me uh, actually in a lot of ways in terms of... Um, not not it's thinking about his future thinking about um the world he's going to grow up in and, and the responsibility we have to make sure that that world is is not a big problem for them uh, and his generation um but yeah he, he was my he's my inspiration at the moment i mean in in my past though um passion for the industry inspires me i like seeing the outcomes um i, I think i'm a little bit autistic myself in fact i'm, I'm being uh, assessed right now for whether I'm autistic or not, because um, obviously uh, when I was a kid, it wasn't a thing. You, you, no one really knew what it was. So yeah. watching my little boy and him grow up going, yeah, I did that as a kid. I did that as a kid. So I'm probably autistic too. And I, I think the fascination with railways and the systems is inspirational. It's, an, it's actually 
it watching things work uh seeing how things operate getting behind those things it is is quite um it, it drives you because you, you can see the effects of of what you're doing and that that motivates me that that makes sense as an answer yes um, it does yeah, yeah. it does. so yeah, it's not from books it's, it's not from um anything like that but it, it is it's very much seeing the system work and, yeah. uh, and understanding trying to get behind why it's not working the way you expected it to it, that the problems motivate you yeah um so definitely how your brain is wired isn't it and that's that's kind of that's not how my brain is wired and I'm I'm so fascinated by people who's who and all of us obviously our brains are, are, are wired differently. Um and that beautiful video animation that you that you shared on LinkedIn yesterday was just the perfect kind of like explanation of from a from an autistic person's perspective, how the and they literally had an image, didn't they, with the wires going in. It just worked perfectly in terms of a really simple explanation of how that is. Um, I'm just I feel like in a real privileged position because I get to speak to people like you who whose brain does work very different to mine. I find it fascinating. It, it, I think we'll probably find if we were to test the industry, a higher proportion of the industry are in the autistic spectrum than you might first imagine. Um, it, it's long been held as a belief that the rail industry houses quite an undiagnosed population. Um yeah. I mean, if you think about some of the drivers, and I'm privileged to know some incredible railway drivers, um, the capability to, to learn route knowledge and to know it to the degree they do is unbelievable. And the understanding that man has of the rail network is incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just knows where everything is and, you know, not just one route, loads of routes. I mean, well, he, he just mm -hmm. knows every little inch of the railway. And that that's a talent that, that neurodiverse people have. Yeah, there's these great memories and these great sort of um, ability to understand the entireties of things. I think so that the railway industry should be a, a natural home for the people who are neurodiverse, and we should be um, trying to make sure that's an accommodating world for for someone who's who's autistic or any any other version of neurodiversity, uh, as, as well as other um, you know, other other diversities. I mean, rail is, is actually very good at that. I think in in creating those environments. Mm -hmm. um, we need to sell ourselves as a place that is a good place for people uh, to be, and and they, there's careers here for people who are neurodiverse. The, the planning teams um, would probably look at themselves as as that kind of skill set. So, yeah. well, timetable planning is is definitely sitting in that complex problem solving, seeing patterns kind of thing. So, yeah, brilliant. So, tell me about Brio. Well, <laughs> show me out. So, very try and keep the story quick. Um, when the pandemic hit, we got stuck at home, as everyone did. Um, and my little boy used to go to nursery. We'd cross the railway every day to, to see the trains. We'd stop on the bridge and wave at people. And when that happened, when the pandemic hit, we couldn't see the trains anymore. He got pretty upset. Um, so I, I started making him little model trains of the ones we saw going under the bridge um, so that he, he was comforted by it. And he loved them. We made little 3D printed trains and we painted them up and... He started getting quite good at making those trains. Um, and about a year ago, I decided that so many people liked them that we should probably see if we could make them as, as products. So you're the very first people to ever see this. Big reveal. Look at those. Oh, wow. They're brilliant. I love them. I absolutely love them. I'm going to put, just put my specs on there. I can put these. That's just brilliant. Absolutely love them, Mike. So as you'd expect, they're quite techy. Yeah. Um, 
they've got little um, data connectors on the end of each coach. Right. So as you connect the train together um, and you, you hit the buttons, it's, if you lights up and it's motorized. Um, but these are obviously the class um, 450s that SWR operate yeah. up and down south of England. And they run as sets of, there's four coaches and there's three sets of four to make a peak 12 car service. Right. So the reason for these little data connectors is that I can take three of these trains, couple them all together, and they will all run as a 12 car train. Right. Which well, my little boy, no end. Because <laughs> um, you can then <laughs> run real trains. So yeah. they, the idea of the company that we're setting up, which we're going to call Real World Trains, right. is it will make, um, with the support of the industry, uh, little model trains for the, for the Brio wooden track system uh, that look like the real railway trains that are out there at the moment. And there are plenty of um, children who are um, neurodiverse, who, who one of the, the features of autism is, is your your fingers and your fine motor skills are quite poor as a yeah. child and your learning is delayed. So my little boy is six, but actually in, in maturity is only about four. So those trains are perfect in terms of you know, him, his ability to play with them and, and manage them and put them on the track. They're ideal. So that's why we've, we've created them. So the idea is we, we create these trains, we'll sell them um, to the marketplace for those who want them. And the, and the money we raise from those will be donated to autistic charities in the oh, UK. Man. Um, and we're getting some nice support from the railway operators in the UK to, to allow me to use the branding to make the models to, to sell. Okay. The long-term ambition of the business is actually to create um, job opportunities for people who have neurodiversity or ADHD problems, and that there's lots out there who struggle to find work because employers won't give them opportunity. So that eventually, if we get big enough, we'll employ people in marketing roles and social media roles and product development roles, and, and through the, the work we're doing, we're actually meeting quite a number of people who are autistic, ADHD, who actually are product designers and, and marketing people. And, and, you know, they tend to freelance because they, they struggle with working environments. So yeah. it, the idea is we'd eventually be able to give people work opportunities to give them uh, basically a, f a foothold on the career ladder, which yeah. then would allow them to springboard into more, more broader industry jobs. Yeah. So that, that's the idea of what we're trying to do. That is brilliant. And in terms of, of my earlier question and what inspires you, when I hear these kind of stories, that inspires me. I think what you're doing, what's come from your little boy missing seeing the trains going backwards and forwards on his way to nursery, to you then coming up with this concept, making it happen, and thinking beyond that, this isn't just you making a toy for your son to play with the knock-on effect of that is significant and then that bigger picture aim in relation to this is about creating job opportunities and improving the environment the atmosphere the the kind of the overall um outlook for people who have got neurodiversity challenges to deal with in a what we might call a normal working environment how do we change that and so that is um, that's really from my perspective, that's really inspiring, Mike. So I really appreciate you sharing with that and to have to have that exclusive flash of, of the uh, of the set is absolutely brilliant as well. I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I knew I would. I find you a, a really such an interesting person and I could talk to you for hours. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast I've really enjoyed it you've you've kind of really set some different thought processes off in my head which I always appreciate different ways of thinking um so thank you enjoy the rest of your day and um and yeah thank you so much for joining me
Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you. My huge thanks to Mike for sharing his career story with us on this episode of the Intuitive Insights podcast. Please do join us again for the next conversation.